You're listening to Björk Unraveled, a series that demystifies Björk's music one piece at a time. I'm your host, Savannah Wright. When Björk looked at the songs she wrote for Volnikura, she noticed a striking pattern. She had composed six heartbreak songs in chronological order. She said, quote, I'd accidentally mapped out the pre and post heartbreak. For me, as a musicologist, the David Attenborough part in me, if you will, I was like, whoa, I had this document. Close quote. This document was a musical breakdown of the stages of grief. She captured what her heart sounded like nine months before, five months before, and 11 months after her divorce. Without realizing it, she had assembled an anthropological case study of music's most potent form, the breakup album. But this wasn't the first time she saw the world through Attenborough's eyes. Björk also said that he inspired her first hit single, Human Behavior. I was in a way pretending a little bit that I'm David Attenborough and I'm looking at the humans, like I'm an anthropologist, you know, and I'm trying to work out what sort of their behavior is. While other girls worshipped heartthrobs like David Cassidy or Scott Baio, Björk idolized scientists like Albert Einstein and David Attenborough. In an interview at the Red Bull Academy, she said, quote, He was kind of my childhood hero. Obviously, being brought up in nature in Iceland, and seeing someone on telly talking about that world as if it has just as much rights as the indoor urban world, was like, yes, I've got one on my team. Close quote. This episode isn't about Volnikora, or human behavior, or even David Attenborough. Okay, it's sort of about him, because these pieces are part of a bigger picture, the scientific mind of Björk. In this episode, I want to explore that side of her music by taking a deeper dive into biophilia. I'll discuss the documentary she made about it with Attenborough, and I'll share how that documentary changed my perspective on biophilia. Because I was wrong. Very wrong. Biophilia is Björk's seventh studio album. She wrote it after a few intense years of climate activism, which we talked about in a previous episode. And then all the situation was happening in Iceland, the bank crash, and, and I got really involved in the environmental stuff here. So on so many different levels, there was this message that all the old systems don't work anymore. You've got to clear your table and start from scratch, you know. This was Björk's Back to Basics album, because what originally got her into music was her long walks to school through nature. So for me, the line blur so easily between music and nature, because that's almost like the same thing for me. Biophilia is a celebration of those two loves, music and nature. That's the heart of this record. But it gets a little heady from there. Björk has always thought she might open a music school, if the whole pop star thing didn't work out, because she found her own music education stifling. It was so focused on the academic side of education that it didn't allow for play and experimentation. Then Björk realized 
she could have both. She could write an album that teaches kids about music through scientific concepts they already knew. She could show that musicology is just as natural as geology. And what's more, she could do it through a fresh, innovative medium, touchscreens. So basically, there's 10 songs, and I started with mapping out the 10 basic uh, musicology elements. Like, for example, there's, there's chords, scales, rhythm, counterpoint, uh, arpeggios, and then I found whatever is uh, most similar in shape, in nature, to those musicology elements, and in order to make it simple for kids. And uh, kids can get a musicology element much quicker. It's just like they can get something in two minutes, what would take them a year to learn in school. Okay, so I kind of knew about the background for this album, but also I really didn't. I remember downloading the app when it came out and exploring each of the little solar systems in the Biophilia galaxy. I knew each was connected to a song, but I must have missed the musicological equivalent for each natural principle, because that's groundbreaking. In that interview I just shared, she breaks down how each song corresponds to both a natural element of the world and a musicological principle. For example, Moon explains musical sequencers through the faces of the moon. Crystalline explains musical structure through crystal structure. Hollow explains rhythm and speed through DNA, which probably explains why it's such a rhythmically jarring song. Dark Matter explains scales through, you guessed it, Dark Matter. Solstice explains counterpoint through the Earth's tilt and gravity. Sacrifice explains musical notation through the interaction of the sexes. And virus explains generative music through viruses and host cells. This is pretty cutting-edge stuff for a music program. I mean, chords, notation, rhythm, scales, that's pretty basic. But sequencers? Generative music? Generative music, by the way, uses a computer program to randomize music production, so that it becomes ever-changing. It's a term popularized by Brian Eno, another mind Bjork looked up to. The time signatures on this album are also pretty rigorous. 
Solstice features 7-4 and 6-4 time signatures. Hollow, Crystalline, and Moon all feature a 17-8 time signature. Mutual Core has a 5-4 time signature. And Dark Matter is in free time because, like Dark Matter itself, it resists structure. Now, this is the world's first app album, so it's made for interaction on the app. But Bjork also wanted the music to be strong enough to stand on its own. So if you play with the app and then listen to the record, you'll notice some slight variations. That's because Bjork did a separate mix for the album version. And listening to it again this year, I think the music does hold up. I had overlooked the beauty of songs like Sacrifice and Cosmogony. And let's be real, Mutual Core is a straight-up banger. Using dubstep sounds to evoke tectonic plates is brilliant. I'm not going to go into every single program, but if you're curious, check out Bjork's YouTube channel. She has a few explainer videos on there. But I do want to talk about how she brought these songs to the stage, and how in the world David Attenborough got involved. In an interview with BBC Radio 6, Bjork said that Attenborough was a huge inspiration for the project. So she reached out to see if he would narrate the app. And he agreed. And then they made a documentary about the creation of the app, the album, and the live concert. The documentary, titled When Bjork Met Attenborough, premiered in 2013 on the BBC. It's about the relationship between music and sound and the natural world. And in that little Venn diagram of those three, you find Bjork, queen of music, and David Attenborough, the iconic voice of nature documentaries. Except this documentary is narrated by none other than Tilda Swinton, another surprising yet fitting choice. At the beginning, Bjork meets Attenborough at the Natural History Museum in London. You can tell she's a little starstruck, but he's all smiles and enthusiasm. How nice to see you. Good to see you. Do you like this place? Yes. It's very epic. It's a great place. There's everything here, from microbes to man to minerals, everything. They talk about the evolution of music in nature, and then Attenborough provides some hilarious analysis of Bjork's voice. That range of sound was, at one time or another, valuable and functional. Um, <laughs> and and that, that you are exploiting it in a way which would have made sense ancestrally. That makes a lot of sense. I yeah. That actually the human larynx is capable of so much more variety of sound than is required for language. And that, to a biologist, would mean that there was a function of the human voice which preceded language. Mm -hmm. So that it's actually singing is more fundamental to us than speaking. So we're actually born or free jazz singers, but we're just chatting yes. away. Yes, it is. <laughs> we're all just born free jazz singers. I love watching these two nerd out. I mean, I agree with some critics that Attenborough can be overly effusive, which makes Bjork even shyer, and 
their exchanges can be a little awkward at times. Like when Attenborough theorizes that humans' ability to sing developed for sex, and that's why young people just love music. But that line about free jazz is a definite highlight. Plus, it's medulla in a nutshell. The best parts of the documentary happen when we get a glimpse into Bjork's creative process for biophilia. Like here, when Bjork explains how the mathematical structure of crystals connects to time signatures. The verses are in 17-8, and then in the chorus, it sort of goes into 4-4, four, four, and then it's like a square, more like a square. Absolutely, or, or in this instance, a cube. Yeah. And when we learn about the first-of-their-kind instruments that Bjork commissioned to bridge these natural and musicological concepts, like the gravity harp, which uses pendulums to play each note of solstice. I thought the best way to explain counterpoint to a child is through gravity, because the relationship between counterpoint and melody, well, counterpoint is basically just a fancy name for bass line, that is very similar, like, like the relationship between a human and gravity. And so to see a big pendulum swinging, and that is the bass line, and, and singing along with it, you, can, you sort of understand that there is they're similar. They're sort of like two magnets, sort of related to each other, but they're different. She developed the gravity harp with the help of Andy Cavatorta from MIT. Here he explains how it works. As they come through the very bottom of their swing, there's a little plectrum that sticks out, and it plucks an instrument that's on the end. It's a big circular harp made like a big cylinder with the strings coming down the outside. And the harp can be turned to play different notes. So you're not only seeing gravity in action, but you're also hearing gravity as it pushes the pendulums to play each note. Another highlight, the Tesla coil. Bjork uses the Tesla coil as an instrument for the song Thunderbolt to explain arpeggios. I was mapping out how I can explain in the most simple way to a kid about arpeggios. Most famous example in pop music is probably I Feel Love with Donna Summer. When you get the and that's basically a chord, if you play like a chord, but it's called broken chords, so you don't hear all the notes at the same time. You hear them first, the first one, then the second one, and the third one, and then again and again and again and again and again. And the lightning would be a really good way to teach about arpeggios. But this isn't art music for art's sake. Bjork's primary objective was to make learning music more accessible. That's why she released the music as an app. The touchscreen encourages experimentation, making music less intimidating for first-time learners. And that's why she connected each song to a principle in science. Students could connect their learning to something they're already familiar with, which is actually a proven way to make your learning stick. One of my favorite examples is from the song Mutual Core. Here, Bjork explains the inspiration behind the song. 
Mutual chord is about chords. I don't know if you noticed, but when you play along on the piano, you can put like two or three fingers and make a chord. And I thought the best way to show the sort of tension uh, that can either arise or, or be relieved, it would be best shown in strata. Maybe this is just me coming from Iceland thinking this is, oh, this is something that everybody understands because it's in, in their everyday life. <laughs> but you have different layers of different types of rocks and then just a little pressure like away or together, it's gonna like change the tension. And this is sort of for me, it's really similar how I experience the different of chords. What a perfect way to explain chords. Tension and release is such a key component of music. That accumulation of tension makes the build in mutual core so satisfying. And connecting that to tectonic plates and relationships? Three levels of brilliance. I know I'm gushing at this point, so I'll take a step back and admit that the documentary wasn't super clear at times. It seemed like they wanted to cover each song but didn't know how to connect them, and connect everything back to Attenborough too. But seeing Björk hold her own against Attenborough and a professor from MIT shows how brilliant she is. And most of all, it gave me a greater appreciation for Biophilia's writing and production process. Because that's what the album is about. The production. When Björk followed up Biophilia with Volnikora, critics praised her for a return to form. Ah, here was the Björk we had missed, the one who writes heartbreakingly beautiful string arrangements, and look at how vulnerable she is on this record. That reaction frustrated Björk. Here's what she said in an interview for Crack Magazine. Quote, Part of biophilia for me was being confident enough as a woman not to have to make a singer-songwriter album about my relationships. I could go on about science and about education. It's a subject matter a guy could totally get away with covering. And I was like, I want to be able to do that. Not always be the sort of person with a heart on my sleeve. Close quote. When I read this quote, I felt silly for not appreciating this record for what Björk intended it to be. I feel like a chump for just touring the app a little, listening to the songs, regretting the fact that the lyrics weren't personal, like homogenic and vespertine, and then moving on. Until 10 years later, when I decided to watch this documentary and really try to figure out what makes Biophilia tick. And now that Biophilia has been around for a decade, I wonder if its narrative is stuck. Do we still consider Biophilia an interim record? Do we lump it together with Volta as the ones with a few good songs but not worthy of deep listening? I can't help but reflect on what the MIT professor said when he talked about collaborating with Björk. Björk's creativity is occasionally ahead of what people know how to do technically, <laughs> which is a great place to be. That's not to say Biophilia went unrecognized. It got praise from numerous critics. In 2014, it became the first app to enter the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. 
Its inclusion was requested by senior curator Paola Antonelli, who said, quote, With biophilia, Bjork truly innovated the way people experience music by letting them participate in performing and making the music and visuals, rather than just listening passively, close quote. Another museum, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, even commissioned a music video for Mutual Core. When you stop and think about that, it's pretty amazing that a museum would commission an art pop star to create a music video. So, as you can see, game recognizes game. The art world knew Biophilia was groundbreaking. It was an album of firsts. The first app album. The first to use the Sharpsichord, Gamalest, and Tesla Coil. The first album to double as a school curriculum. It makes me think of other artists that were ahead of their time, whose works were recognized as groundbreaking, even if they weren't fully appreciated by their audiences. I wonder how Bjork's music will be received decades from now, when the rest of the world catches up. Throughout the show, I've mentioned Bjork music videos in passing, but as you just learned with Mutual Core, these videos are works of art, and they deserve some further study. In the next episode, I'll explore some of Bjork's most memorable music videos with another Bjork fan. I'll call them Isabel. You've been listening to Bjork Unraveled, a series that demystifies Bjork's music one piece at a time. Bjork Unraveled is produced independently by me, Savannah Wright. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend and submit a review on whatever podcast app you're using. And consider donating to the show. There's a link in the show notes where you can donate $1 or $5 a month. I'm an independent producer, so every dollar will go towards music, software, and equipment. With your help, I can make the show sound even better. And speaking of, this episode was brought to you by Enrico Topo. Thanks, Enrico. You're the real MVP. If you have an idea for a future episode, tell me about it. You can find me on Instagram at Bjork Unraveled. I'm Savannah Wright. Thanks for listening. <laughs>